0: to Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. Now, I don't know if he is, but I'm going to say he is, and those of you that like to check up on things, you can check up. H.B. Lovecraft could be the father of American horror films uh, in the early 1900s. He said the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. Uh, I don't even know what this guy... I can't pronounce his first name. His, his last name is Cyrus. He's a first century ethicist or moralist, B.C., first century B.C. Uh, he says, when fear comes to pass, what we fear comes to pass more speedily than what we hope for. Uh, there's a guy named Dave Barry, and he's kind of like the, uh, the new anxiety expert today. And he says, all of us are born with a set of instinctive fears of falling, of the dark, of lobsters... Of falling on lobsters in the dark (laughs) Or speaking before a rotary club Or for the men and the words Some assembly required, right? Uh, There's another uh, novelist A guy named Edgar Wallace He wrote a book called The Clue of the Twisted Candle How many of you read that? I haven't either Um, He wrote Fear is a tyrant and a despot More terrible than the rack More potent than the snake Uh, A German proverb goes like this, fear makes the wolf bigger than he is. Uh, I went on the internet and found the list of phobias and fears that are clinically accounted for by mental health experts. There's an endless list, a literal A through Z list. Now, on that list are those that we would expect to find on that list. Everyone knows you're going to have the fear of heights. Even as I say it, some of you are going to freak out right now. The fear of a confined space, right? Uh, The fear of flying, the fear of death. Those are gimmies, right? But there are some on that list that are not gimmies. They are kind of in the bizarre realm. There's the fear of flutes. (laughs) phobia. There is the fear of frogs. Homiclophobia. And then this is a killer. The fear of Flowers. I mean, Ferdinand loved flowers. Who doesn't like flowers? There's a fear of flowers. That's called anthophobia. Uh, And then there's the fear of books, which I had in high school. Bibliophobia. And then the fear of dancing, which particularly is a Baptist fear. And then the fear of anything new, which really strikes down Presbyterians. Right? There is even a fear of teenagers. This is for real. Everything I'm saying here is real, even though we're having fun with it. Fear of teenagers, and I think that fear probably ends on the 20th birthday, I guess. Yeah, okay. There's even the fear of sermons. Yeah, I know who you are. (laughs) And it's called homilophobia. (laughs) All right, we fear. That's the point. We fear. Fear is a universal human condition. Sometimes fear is good. In other words, we should fear. You should fear dangerous animals. You should fear a car that's out of control. You should fear terrorists. You should fear body odor. Those are things that we should fear. But there are also bad fears. I mean, fears that have the power to paralyze us. Fears that have the power to actually decode you as a person. Control you, enslave you, destroy you. Like the fear of failure, of always having to be right, of losing, of not winning, of having power and control over people and conversations and situations there's the fear of rejection you know being disapproved of or disrespected or not liked or not appreciated not loved by someone thought wrongly or rightly there's the fear of worthlessness of being a nobody a nothing unacceptable not measuring up right Welcome to the world of fear. And in this world of fear, we're going to see its logic, the logic of fear. And then we're going to see the replacement of fear. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Okay,
1: he'll turn to uh... Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, or... Your bulletin page 10. <clears throat> on that day when evening had come he said to them let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd they took him with them in the boat just as he was and the other boats were with them and a great storm a great storm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? The word of the Lord.
0: Please be seated. Oh, Lord, I pray that uh, by your Spirit you would actually. Actualize the passage in our lives. That Your Kingdom would come. Uh, that You would shine on the page uh, in such a way uh, that it, that what's here becomes very real. That we can see it. That we can taste it. That we can touch it. Uh, that we can smell it. And we ask this for Your great name's sake, and for the good. Um, the good of your people we pray this in jesus name amen all right the sea of galilee sits like an enclosed bowl 700 feet below sea level Uh, it's surrounded by hills and mountains on the western side it has gentle slopes sloping down to the water remember the the natural amphitheater where the parables are being taught that's on the, uh, on the western side. On the eastern side, it has sharp, jagged precipices and cliffs that just drop straight down into the water. Uh, fishermen on that side have to carefully mark their approach to land because there is no safe landing place on that side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, on the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee sits Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet above sea level. Now, Pike's Peak is 14,114 feet above sea level in Colorado. And the tallest peak in the Rockies is Mount Gilbert. Elbert. He wouldn't want to be called Gilbert. Elbert. And that stands at 14,440 feet. All right? So... Cold air comes whipping, screaming, screeching over Mount Hermon, comes rushing down into the bowl, hits the warm air of the Sea of Galilee, and you have highlights regularly on the Weather Channel. Just out of nowhere, storms arise. Uh, the, 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 today's Galilean fishermen call that east evening wind, Because it's an east evening wind. They call it the sharkia. It's Arabic for what? Shark. Because it will bite you. Now look at what time of day this is all taking place in verse 35. On that day when evening had come. Sharkia. Uh, There's a phrase in verse 37 that's very interesting. See the great windstorm. That literally is translated great whirlwind of wind. Uh, Or uh, a great storm of wind. So this is probably a hurricane. That's what we're looking at here. And if it's not a hurricane, I mean, it's in the upper categories of uh, a tornado on the water. Uh, To also... Kind of give you the picture of the terror that's involved in this passage right now. Look at verse 37. The waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. Here's what it literally says: the waves laid hands on the boat. It was like big wave hands came out of the water, grabbed the boat, were pulling the boat under, and water, present tense, is now rushing into the boat. I mean, who wouldn't be scared? If you're not afraid when that's happening, something's wrong with you. This is enough to scare anybody. And when fear does strike us, as we know, when it strikes these fishermen, when it strikes the disciples, when fear strikes us, it's absolutely overwhelming. It's overwhelming in your inner person parts, the parts of your heart and the parts of your soul where your mind is. It's overwhelming in that area in such a way that you just start... It starts generating psychological chaos. Uh, It spins off a whirlwind of uncomfortable and uncontrollable thoughts and feelings just roar like a storm internally. But it's also, fear is also overwhelming, not just in your internal person, but your external person, your outer person, your physical person, which includes your brain, your body. Your body gets overwhelmed. Shortness of breath. Adrenaline dumps. You start sweating. Your temperature goes up. Maybe the world starts spinning. You feel like you're going to pass out. Anxiety just rises to a panic. The brain and the body, the outer person, the physical person, is always scanning the inner person, the heart and the soul. And it's always saying, hey, man, are we okay? How's it going in there? And the heart and the soul says, we're not okay. We're freaking out. The sky is falling. And the body and the the brain and the body says, what? We're not doing okay. We're freaking out. The sky is falling. And the body freaks out. Fear is an overwhelming experience internally, externally. Uh, Now, here's the point. Even though fear is so uncomfortable, so overwhelming, so uncontrollable, here's the point. It has a logic to it. Even if we're not aware of it, fear has its reasons for being there. Fear is always speaking to us if we'll listen. It will tell you and it will tell us, here's why I'm here. Here's what you're afraid of. So if we listen carefully. Fear will tell us the reasons that it's there. This is why Jesus says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? I mean, this is a diagnostic question. This is not a a question for Jesus' benefit as if he needs new information because he can't figure it out. This is a, uh, a diagnostic question for the benefit of the disciples so that they figure it out. Why are you so afraid? He's trying to expose the roots and the foundations and the very reasons or causes for their fear so that they see it and can be set free from it, okay? Basically, what Jesus is saying when he comes up to them and says, why are you so afraid? He wants them to go and grab their fear like it's a weed and pull it up and look at the roots. Oh, that's why I'm afraid. So contrary to most solutions and methods and treatments today for fear... Jesus doesn't just deal with the symptoms He goes to the root Why are you so afraid So why are the disciples afraid Got the hurricane Hands tipping the boat Water pouring in Why are they so afraid Here's the bottom line They are afraid the same reason why we're afraid. We fear what we cannot control. You fear. I fear what I cannot control. And then here's a little piece to control that we must understand. In other words, why are we trying to control? And here's the other point. We try to control whatever we feel we need or must have. See how that works? We need, we must have we try to control. We fear what we cannot control. Here's how it works. For example, when we need to be right, when you and I need to win, when we need to succeed, when we need to have control and power and influence over our lives, over people, over life situations, conversations, whatever it is, when we need that because we need it because it gives us a sense of our Self. It gives us a sense of security and it gives us our happiness. We believe that, so we need it. We must have it. So when? When we're challenged, we fear. When there's pushback against us, someone disagrees with us, a child, a spouse, a teammate, an enemy, we fear. Uh, We fear criticism. When we're criticized, that's a hard thing for anybody, isn't it? Does anybody want to be criticized? No. Okay, good. When we are criticized, we all struggle with it. But there's a difference between struggling with criticism and criticism destroying you, devastating you. No, I don't do this. Maybe you do. You know, like if you're working out or you're running and... You kind of go through the conversation that you just had with somebody and you're winning it. And you're saying what should have been said at the right time with the best zinger. Or you're lying awake at night. Oh, yeah, gosh. Right? Criticism devastating us. Uh, Husbands, and this is why I'm singling out husbands. Those of you know that uh, officers, deacons, and elders have been nominated, and so we're in the midst of training them. And uh, one of the assignments that was given last week or two weeks ago that is due this week is that these guys had to take home to their wives a wives questionnaire. So this is for the husbands out there. Husbands, would, you say you're, would, you, would your wife say that you are easily approachable, rebukable, correctable, repentable, changeable? Husbands, would you say that your wife has unhindered access and veto over your view of reality? Or are you the king in your self-centered universe? Sorry, husbands. We need to be a little uncomfortable. How we answer that question is the mark of how much fear husbands have. All right, another example, when we need financial security or we need financial success, when we need that in order to be secure as a person, in order to have cosmic security and safety and what do I have here? To be okay, to have comfort in life, to, to be an insider and have the respect and the recognition from whoever makes you an insider. When that happens, when the, mar- when the stock market goes down, we fear When we get our paycheck and it's shrinking, we fear. We fear that expense. Everyone knows what that expense is. It's that unplanned for, unexpected expense, and everybody's going, we freak out, right? Uh, We will do things. We'll do good things when this happens. We'll do good things like even have a budget. But we'll do it out of fear, trying to control We'll do good things like pursue certain careers and go in certain directions, which is a good thing. But we'll pursue a career out of fear, not out of calling. Big difference. The disciples cannot control the storm in this passage. So they are very, very afraid. There's one final piece to the logic of fear. I wondered if we all saw it. Did you see it? One final piece before we move to the replacement of fear. Here it is. The storm did not cause the disciples' fear. What? Are you crazy, Jeff? Let me say it again. The storm did not cause the disciples' fear. The storm revealed the fear that was already there, lingering, lurking, hiding in their hearts, and the storm made it come up. How do we know this? How do we know this? Because the storm wasn't bothering Jesus. Look at verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Jesus is not afraid. And you're saying and I'm saying and everybody's saying, yeah, but that's Jesus. Come on. Second person in the Trinity. And I want to say, yes, it is he's also the perfect man and he's showing us he's showing us what a real man looks like a real human being looks like even in a storm two weeks ago i was in my study and um oh i was studying and i heard ty holler for something ty's our two and a half year old in a pretty demanding way and I was like oh that's interesting I'm in my study I'm not involved so I'll stay here and Nancy gently corrects him now honey when you ask for something you say mommy may I please do it nice and respectfully he hollers again same thing demandingly Nancy gently responds says the exact same thing well it happens again I'm standing up while I'm upstairs. I'm done. My patience is gone. Honey, when you ask for something, you say, please, may I please have? And you treat your mom with respect, right? And then there's this long silence, and I'm like, okay, it worked. You know, it was one of those contemplative silences, that kind that you're like, okay, he's thinking about it. It's clicking. It got in. Bingo! Bingo! You know, good job, honey. And then here are the words that I heard. Mommy, you make me mean. (laughs) So he's a two and a half year old. I've never had a two and a half year old do this. I have five kids. So he processes, he sees what's going on. He sees how he's acting. He sees how mean he is. He sees that he's being nasty. He sees that he's acting ugly. But what does he do? Mommy, you made me this way. Brothers and sisters, my friends, (laughs) the storms do not make you fearful. Speaking in front of people does not make you fearful. People do not make you fearful. Financial insecurity does not make you fearful. Your heart makes you fearful. My heart makes me fearful. The logic of fear is this. Number one, we need, we feel that we need. We must have it. We must have it for, to be somebody. We must have it to justify our existence. We must have it for security and safety. We must have it to be an acceptable person. We must have it for flourishing and freedom and happiness and well-being. We must have it. It gets threatened by a storm. We fear fear. Logic of fear. Now, how in the world are we going to get rid of fear? I mean, look, can we have an honest conversation? How are you going to get rid of your fear? And you know what your fears are. Or you don't know what the fears are. You just have, you feel the weed. You feel, you sense the smoke. You've been opening windows to your house and the smoke is suffocating you. The fear is suffocating you. It's making your life miserable and you think opening windows, turning on fans, hitting the air conditioner. It's not working. There's got to be a fire somewhere. How do you get rid of fear? How do you, what is powerful enough to get rid of fear? That most primal human emotion that started back in the garden. What is powerful enough to do it? Breathing techniques are not going to do it. Visualizing you're at your beach is not going to do it. Now, it might postpone it. It might cause you to open your refrigerator and enjoy old beverages. It's not going to do it. Here's what happens here. Jesus tells us how. Tells us what replaces it. And then he shows us. Now, for, that, this is what I love about this passage. I love about the scriptures. It's multifaceted. It hits in very different angles. For some of you, you need to be told. So I'm going to tell you. But for others of you, like me, you need to see it. Your picture, your, your visual learner. Well, scripture says, I'll do both. All right, so here's the if you need to be told, if you need propositions here it is. It starts in verse 40. You ready? He said to them, "Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith?" Jesus right here tells us the answer. He tells us what the opposite of faith is. He tells you what the antonym of faith is. The opposite of faith, I mean the opposite of fear, the antonym of fear is faith. There's your answer. So faith is powerful enough to replace fear. But faith in what? Faith in what? I want you to look at verse 38. Now I want you to see that these are the first recorded words of the disciples to Jesus. So in other words, in all of Mark's gospel, we have not heard the disciples talk to Jesus yet. So this is the first recorded words of the disciples to Jesus. These are the core characteristic center Of how the disciples relate to Jesus. These are paradigmatic words. These are global words. These are words loaded with meaning. And here they are. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The first words of the first disciples recorded in the book of Mark. Reveal the ultimate inside view of human beings before God. You don't care about us. If we were to make it a little more personal, we would say something like this. You don't, you don't care about me. If you did, this wouldn't be happening. If you cared about me, this wouldn't have happened. If you cared about me, I wouldn't feel so alone and so abandoned and so cut off from you. Things would be different if you cared about me. And faith comes in there and has a different perspective. Faith is the heart resting, the heart relying, the heart rejoicing in Jesus' care. His unfailing love, even in the storm. And unfailing love tells us this. It doesn't fail. It doesn't end no matter what we do. It never exhausts itself because of what we do. So fear is what happens in the human soul when faith in Jesus' unfailing love is not present. When faith in Jesus' unfailing love is not present in the heart, Fear tumbles in. The only thing powerful enough to get faith out of the human heart, fear out of the human heart, is faith. Faith in his unfailing love. Okay? So that's how Jesus tells us. Now, sometimes we need to see it. Sometimes that helps you better. So let's see it. Watch Jesus' response to the charge, you don't care about me, verse 39. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Do you see the word rebuke there? In verse 39, you see the word rebuke? It's already been used two times so far in Mark. And guess how it's been used? Rebuking evil spirits, exercising them out of people. Hmm, that's interesting. All right, now combine it with, see the word be still. It could be translated be still and stay still. Be still means to muzzle, like muzzle a wild animal, a dangerous animal that just, and you muzzle the animal so you can't be bit. So it goes kind of like this. And also notice it's in the second person singular. So it's personified as a you. So Jesus is saying something like this. You, be still and stay still. You, be still. Shut your mouth. Don't open it again. In the Old Testament, wind and water were always um, hostile, uncontrollable forces against man. And God was the only one that could control them. In the ancient Near Eastern religions, in the ancient Near Eastern mythology, in the sea lived an evil Devilish deity. In Jewish thought, the sea was the place that all the evil spirits lived and demons lived. It was the manifestation of the realm of death. Here's the point verse 39 is the language of an exorcism. Jesus is treating the storm like it's a personified force of evil. And he stops it. He beats it. He wins. He defeats it. And when the wind ceased, there was a great calm. I read um, Unbroken. I think some of y'all have read it too. Louis Ampini. Zampini. He uh, was shot down or crashed in World War II. Most of his crew was killed. He and three guys survived. The longest time that anybody had been in the open sea without water or adrift was 21 days. They were there for 47. Um, One guy ended up dying. They were circled by sharks endlessly. Sharks were jumping into the boat trying to rip them out. One night at like 2 in the morning, they woke up on on a... they woke up because their raft was being nudged and lifted up and dropped down, lifted up and dropped down. It was a full moon. They looked over and they saw a shadow at least 35, 40 feet. Endlessly stalked by sharks, dying of thirst and hunger, hallucinating. Then Japanese planes strafing them and shooting them. they having to jump into the water with the sharks or be shot. I'm going to tell you the rest of it, because you think that that's bad. It just gets worse. But what happened on one of those days, and he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, but it changed his life, he said. One day, after a storm, there was a great calm, and the water, of the ocean, was as smooth as glass, And the wind didn't even whisper all creation was at rest as if it was doing what it should do, perfect peace, sheer shalom. And he said, I knew God was with me. Only God could do something like this. You see, the miracle in the story is not that the wind stops, the storm stops. Because when a storm stops, the wind still blows, doesn't it? This is an unnatural stillness. When wind, when a storm hits, the the waves still roll, don't they? See a glass. What happens next? Some, it's interesting when you read and you hear things. I've heard this. How many times have you heard this passage preached? Good night. I lost count. What happens next most people make to be the big point The point of the whole passage I I beg to disagree I beg to differ What happens next The disciples fear Jesus more than the storm Do you see that Why do they fear Jesus more than the storm Because remember why do we fear We fear when we are Not in control Well now Someone more uncontrollable Than the storm is in their presence Someone they cannot control is in their presence, and so they fear. And most folks tend to think that that's the point. But what's missing here is what Mark wants everyone to see, so you fill in a different ending. So the reader has a different ending than that ending, because he spells it out so beautifully, so specifically, so clearly, that if a Jewish reader was to read this, they'd go, of course That's it. That's what's missing in the story. And if it's missing in the story, if the disciples would have seen it, the whole scene would have changed. There would have been a different response. There would have been faith. But instead, there's still fear. They just now fear someone even greater. What did they miss? The better Jonah. The better Jonah who stops the storm. The parallels are phenomenal. Do you see that? If Jonah, you have a prophet called to foreigners, Nineveh. Jesus, in this boat, is right now crossing the sea from the from the Jewish side to the Gentile side, from the gentle slopes and the natural amphitheater to the crevices, the, the crashing, unfriendly shoreline where people actually herd pigs. Pig herders are on this side. Those are unclean animals on the side. Both are going to foreigners. And on their way, on their mission as prophets, a major storm threatens them. And both of these prophets, though, which is just incredible, they're asleep while the storm's going on and the crew's freaking out. And then the crew, as they're freaking out, they go and find them asleep and they're like, Shocked. How can you be asleep? And then both accounts, the crews in some way blame them in their sleep for the storm. And then in both accounts, both prophets stop the storm. And in the end, the crew fears God more than the storm. But did you catch the difference? Because that's what Mark wants you to see. That's what Jesus wants you to see. Jonah is a reluctant savior. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. And the only way he could stop the storm is he knew that he had to throw himself overboard and sacrifice himself for the storm to stop and he didn't want to do it. Jesus, he's a relentless savior. Relentless. He went to the greater Nineveh. He went to the city of man. And he said, God said, whom shall I send? And he said, send me. I will go. And he willingly, when you read the rest of the story, throws himself overboard into the ultimate storm of your sin, your fears, your death your demonic oppression producing the great calm what's begging what this story is begging is a different ending it's ending it's begging a response of not fear but faith a rest of the heart, a reliance of the heart, a rejoicing of the heart in Jesus' unfailing, not reluctant Saviorness, relentless Saviorness, self sacrificing Saviorness. A kind of love that takes and never exhausts, no matter what you do. And when you trust that, the great calm.